Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Stella Nianzi. Hun er digter, antropolog, forfatter, feminist, og så er hun en helt vildt inspirerende og imponerende aktivist. Hun kommer, som sagt, fra Uganda, hvor hun har ført an i nogle meget voldsomme protester mod præsident Juvarim Museveni, som har været leder i landet siden 1986. Hun har engageret sig i det, der hedder Nude Protest, hvor hun har taget trøjen af for at vise den kvindekrop, som det autoritære regime skulle være så bange for og spurgt, er det det her, I er bange for? Er det den her krop, som gør jeg så frygtelig bange? Hun har genopdaget en form for protest, som hedder Radical Rudeness, hvor hun med nogle meget grove smededigte mod præsident Museveni har skabt offentlig opstandelse. Hun har engageret sig på alle mulige forskellige niveauer i en modstandskamp med stor inspiration, stor beslutsomhed og en vilje til at tage de hårde, farlige kampe og samtidig gøre det med et meget stort humør. Jeg mødte hende på en konference her i København for sociale bevægelser, som mellemfolkeligt samvirke afholdt her i efteråret, og blev med det samme slået af hendes attitude, hendes tilgang, hendes entusiasme og hendes autoritet. Hun havde så meget at give i de paneldebatter, hun deltog i, i de workshops, hvor hun blev et naturligt centrum, og i vores fælles samtale om, hvordan man selv under meget vanskelige omstændigheder fører modstandskamp. Jeg tænkte med det samme, at hende skulle vi simpelthen have i langsomme samtaler, så det er en stor fornøjelse, at det her et par måneder efter konferencen er lykkedes mig at få lavet en aftale med Stella Nianzi, som er flygtet fra Uganda og aktuelt bor i Tyskland. Så værsgo, her er min samtale med Stella Nianzi. Stella Nianzi, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. Uh, you've been a role model for us for a while, and we've watched your work and admired your incredible bravery and the originality of, of your protest. And we've become aware how little radical we are here when we see what you're doing. And of course, also because we've been following what's been happening under Museveni in, in Uganda, we have people here who care a lot about these anti-homosexuality laws and are truly horrified by them. So you being, you, your fight and your struggle, we've just been admiring for a long time. So that's, I want to say thank you for that first. Then I'm curious because you do so many things. You're an academic and a poet. You're a politician and an activist. You're a woman leading the way for other women. You're a queer activist. You do so many things at the same time. My impression is that it all goes together in your work. How do you identify? Well, I I think I'm all those things you've said. That's how people identify me by my work. So, you know, writer, academic, poet, all those are sort of forms of knowledge that I've produced and how they're packaged. Um, but yes, I'm a mother, I'm a woman, I'm a Ugandan, I'm an African. And I think what sort of ties up everything for me is that I'm a critical person who likes freedom for myself, but also others. And where freedom is taken away by especially violent means or forceful means, then I become a rebel <laughs> and I become a dissident. And I think part of what's exciting for me is to use 
knowledge in ways that are accessible to empower other people to question, to say no, to push back and to resist. So, you know, I think of myself as a thinker who finds ways of challenging people who abuse power. And then I might package it as a poem, I might package it as a you know, protest action, I might package it as an essay, or I might just undress in protest. And all these are ways of speaking back and encouraging others to do the same. I don't know if I've identified myself well for you. Oh, very well, very well. You said on several occasions that you're a woman of relative privilege. Your father was a doctor and he encouraged you to study the anatomy. And you originally dreamt of becoming a professor, and you did go through an education that had a PhD degree, and you wrote in academic journals that were very important. And that was kind of activist in itself, the, the, the research that you did. But then you became an activist in a more which a public way. How did you become an activist? Look, I think if activism means that I decided to stand up and challenge the status quo or to question, then I think I've been an activist for a very long time as a child. I was questioning school authority when the headmistress of my school got a cane and began beating up girls in an old boarding school. It was the first time in about, I don't know, the whole life of of the secondary school I attended that a person of authority had picked up a cane to beat up children. And the change happened when this new headmistress was the first Ugandan African headmistress. For a long time, we'd had European British missionaries heading our school. And they gave us soft punishments, but never corporal caning or beating of children. So this first African woman, we are very excited. A black is now the head of our school. And then she gets up a stick and she's beating children. I thought, no way. And I wrote to her. I was in my second year of secondary school and I was severely punished in front of the school assembly. But I think I was an activist then. I was an activist as a child much younger when my father was beating up my mother and I stood up and said no. And one time I wrote him a letter asking him, Daddy, why are you so kind to us as children? But you're terrible to mommy, you know? That is activism because it's it's speaking up. And I think just like that head teacher beat me up, my father also beat me, beat me for questioning and speaking up. So I think as a child, there were ways I was an activist. My public activism becomes noticed when it becomes involved with political power, I think. And when I take on Yoweri Museveni and his wife, Janet Museveni, who is the Minister of Education, and I do it through social media, Facebook. I mobilize people to say Yoweri Museveni has promised young girls in Uganda during his campaign rally. He's promised them sanitary pads, menstrual hygiene materials. And then when he becomes president, he reneges on this premise and sends his wife to say there's no money in the public account. That is when my work was noticed publicly. But I think I've been an activist, sort of speaking out, maybe not very, not addressing profound systems of power, but my father was a power holder in our home. That headmistress was a power holder. 
when I've taken my cousins away from their abusive husbands, that is being an activist, maybe at a very small scale. So how did I become an activist, I think is not the answer you're looking for. The answer you're looking for is when did I become publicly noticed? Yes. Yeah, but I think women such as myself, the big sister who is taking care of her siblings in front of parents who may be broken up, that is an activist child. You know, the young woman in the clan who is challenging patriarchs, that's an activist who never gets noticed. And I think that if that is the case, then I come from a long lineage of mothers and grandmothers and aunts who are activists whose work was never acknowledged. But my public recognition begins with the sanitary pads campaigns in Uganda. Before that, maybe, maybe a year before I challenged the head of my institution at Makerere University in my first public nude protest. Maybe that too, I was noticed. But in that case, I wasn't called an activist. I was called a mad woman. (laughs) (laughs) So some forms of activism, I think, are given value and recognized by whoever is discussing them. And sometimes they're devalued and um, denigrated to become forms of madness or psychosis or bad manners. For women, it's usually you're a bad mannered woman if you're doing particular forms of activism. Did you, because we know there's the tradition of radical rudeness, of public insult, and you're part of that tradition or seen as some, some who's who's interpreting this this tradition that seems very inspiring and very powerful. Was that for you being part of a tradition or something that you wanted to do at the time? Were you aware of this was a long tradition and that been written academic articles about it? Now there are people writing academic articles about you. Were you aware, aware, aware of this tradition? Well, yes and no. I mean, when I wake up in the morning and I'm enraged by some injustice in society, my natural response when I turn on my TV or I read the newspaper is to go, fuck, or damn, or shit, they didn't do that again. And and I'm not calling on a tradition of anti-colonial fighters when I do that. It's, it happens all the time. You know, people say in Africa, women are very polite. In Uganda, women are very polite. Educated women are very polite and disciplined. They don't swear. They don't curse. And I'm thinking, no way. I've had almost every relationship that I have in Uganda, my mothers, my aunts, my grandmothers, the men as well, often respond with insult, direct insult and ridicule when outrageous forms of injustice are happening. It's our first sort of gut response, unedited, uncensored, before the censors and reviews of respectability and politeness and civility come in. My gut response is, fuck, you know? And I don't think that when we do that, we are calling on any tradition. For me, I was being human. Now, writing politely, I've been trained, you know, I've I've gone to university where we are told to write politely and be polite. And when we're impolite, we are punished. And so I think part of the tradition I got really disciplined into as a person who's gone to school, you talk about my PhD, what the PhD did was to take away this critical edge and form of power To speak so impolitely and disrespectfully to power, I think, is very powerful. 
part of what our colonizers did, you know, the British colonizers did, especially for women, but women of class from, from my kingdom, from Buganda, was to teach us to be respectable and never to speak back. And when we spoke back, to speak softly, to look down and never look at the eyes of men and never look at the eyes of power holders and to speak in praise. We were not taught to speak critically. And I think for me that, therefore, when I was writing impolite poetry, I was just being rebellious, like any good woman should be. And drawing from my everyday practices of response to injustice. And so the first time I hear about this radical rudeness tradition, I think I was in prison um, after I had written about the president's wife and her big thighs and she's stealing and she's a cow. I called her a cow that eats and doesn't get satisfied. And then people began writing about you know, the the, the anti-colonial struggles, and they put me in this same tradition. And I thought, wow, I belong to a tradition. Wow, important. I belong to a genealogy. That's what they say, a genealogy of resistors. And I thought, wow, important. And then when I was released from prison that time on bail, a good friend sent me articles by a historian called Carol Summers. And I found that a lot of the people who were writing were men, educated men, from my tribe, the Baganda, who are the majority tribe, and they were colonial uh, collaborators. But these men, although educated and civilized and holding uh, administrative power for our colonizers, refused to comply. They refused to obey and work with the colonizers. And they wrote rude letters. In the, it was usually published in the newspapers, not published as academic journal articles, ridiculing the queen, ridiculing the king, you know, the, 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 the colonial administrators threatening to rape the queen and threatening to do this and that. And that is an established uh, tradition. They were imprisoned. Many of them were told to write apologies, public apologies in the newspapers, and they refused and they chose instead to serve terms in prison. And so there's that record. And the more I read about them, the more I liked them. There are similarities, but I think what was interesting for me is when I was starting to write against the president and his wife and the military and the, the ministers who are so corrupt, I hadn't thought I was drawing from this particular tradition. When people put me there, I'm appreciative, but often I I, I want to also highlight the the differences between who had that sort of privilege during anti-colonial times. And I think for me, what has been interesting is to notice how very similar the colonizer and dictator Museveni are today. Yes, that is something that was already described by Ponce Fanon, the way that, that the, the liberators could become oppressors when they took over the colonial system and the colonial attitudes. And very often you saw people moving into the same palaces and maintaining the same power structure. And I remember Museveni, when he was, when he became president, I was 12 years old. And I remember here, we were, he was a, someone that we had big aspirations for, for, for here. And in the 90s, when I was a little older, he, we were still talking very highly of him, in, at least here in, in, in Scandinavia. I don't know about the rest of the world. And he went on this journey from liberator to oppressor that is not unusual. We've seen that many places. The longer they stay in power, the more likely it is. 
How did you experience this transformation? Because that must have been, you were born in 74 like me, so you must have been 12 years when he became president as well. So this is kind of your lifespan watching him. Yeah, I mean, Museveni is a disappointment. There are many Ugandans, especially those who are older than me, who said they always knew he was a bad man. He was a dictator. He was corrupt and militant and uh, very authoritarian. Now, I was among those who were fooled, who were very gullible. When Idi Amin was in power and when he was being ousted, my parents fled from Uganda and they went to Kenya. And so I lived as a refugee child to refugee parents who were living in Nairobi. We came back. I think when we were in, 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 in refuge in Nairobi, my father was among a group of Ugandans who would contribute every month from their little earnings. They'd contribute towards the guerrilla war and the organizing that was led by Museveni. Some of it was happening in Kenya, in Tanzania, and in Mozambique. Now, as a child, I never knew, but my father sometimes hosted these beer drinking meetings at home. And some of the times there were revolutionaries in Museveni's revolution planning and thinking. And so I'm among the children who believed that Yori Museveni was indeed a liberator. In fact, when I was a child, I used to wear my arm, my, my, my wristwatch on the hand that Museveni used to wear his, because, you know, as, as a soldier, I think it was something to do with what hand you hold your gun with and what hand you can have your watch on. I loved watching him. I admired watching him on our black and white TV after we came back from being refugees and came back to Uganda. He was in power. We celebrated him. I used to watch him hours and hours on end. I sang the liberation songs that his guerrilla soldiers sang when they were in the bush. In fact, I went for, we, we called it political training at military camp after my high school. My parents said, you're not going. And I stole away from the house deep in the night and I got onto the buses that were going for this three month compulsory training that he put up because I believed in Yoweri Museveni's liberation struggle. And I believed in all his rhetoric about, you know, we, we, he had what he called a 10 point program in Uganda against corruption, patriotism, fighting our economy, rebuilding Uganda, re, you know, building unity, going against sectarianism. There were 10 points he had. And so to be where I am today is to be very disappointed to watch a leader and a hero that I believed in becoming a monster like the monsters that led my parents to flee from Uganda is very painful. And I think that um, your, your question around the transformation, watching it, I mean, sometimes I look at the words he wrote much earlier and the words he speaks today, and it's a total U-turn, maybe 180 degrees, or is it three, 360 takes you back to the same place. So this is 180 degree departure. He said things like Africa's problem are leaders who don't want to change power and they stay in power for a long time. He's that person now. He's become Uganda's problem because he does not want to leave power. He removed the presidential term limits from our constitution. He removed the presidential age limits from our constitution. He wants to stay in power until he dies. So he's gone totally against what he wanted to do when he came to the presidency in Uganda. 
He talked about corruption and fighting against corruption. And he talked against leaders who had huge convoys of cars and huge palaces and big bank accounts in foreign countries. Today, Yoweri Museveni is that very same leader he was criticizing when he came to power. Um, he was very, very critical of security forces when a person was arrested and they disappeared or they died during detention and the security could not explain. He was very, very critical of this when he'd just come to power. Today, Ugandans are disappeared. Ugandans get arrested in drones, they are abducted and they disappear off the streets. Many die in detention facilities which are not gazetted. And so Museveni has become a total reversal of what he came to stand for. People are very critical of me when I say Museveni is a very wise man. They say, how can you be in the opposition in Uganda and you say he's a wise man? And they say to me, in fact, he's foolish. If he was wise, he would create a good transition into the next presidency. And I say to them, he is very wise because he has been able to continue fooling many Western democracies. When he came, the IMF, the World Bank, they loved him. He was their blue-eyed boy, of course, black and without blonde hair. And they gave him so much money for, 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 for the changes, of the, you know, the structural adjustment programs that the IMF wanted to bring into Africa, very destructive, totally unbeneficial to, to Africa. And he implemented them because they believed in him. They gave him so much credit, so many loans, so much donor aid. Uganda is so indebted today. Our debt, you know. And I think part of the problem, apart from being an implementer of those global Western structural adjustment programs, he's also the man who fights all the anti-terror wars in Africa. Museveni fights on behalf of the US, United States of America, he's fighting in Somalia, he's fighting in Congo, he's in the DRC, he's fighting in Chad, he's fighting all the anti-terrorism wars on behalf of the US today. And I think part of the duplicity of the Western world, which praises him, is they don't think he's a star or he's excellent. It's not that they don't see his faults. They see his faults, but Museveni plays a lot of their proxy action for them. He does a lot of the dirty clearing house for the Western world. And so, yes, I agree. There are some people who still think he and admire him, still think he's a revolutionary leader. But I think many people in the West are aware of his shortcomings, are aware of his abuse of power, but they need him as a convenient excuse to continue whatever <clears throat> foreign relations, foreign policy they may have in Africa. Museveni does the dirty work for them. And unfortunately, we have several dictators doing dirty work for us right. in, in the West. With distance. We can be morally against them, but our leaders are cooperating with them and we don't protest. That is a kind of complicity that we all share here in the West in several countries. U Uganda is one of them. So you studied, you wrote a PhD in London and you came back to a country that was becoming more and more sexually and morally conservative, or at least the government was. And for, you know, a lot of the oppression we know we've seen before, but this is so radical. The death sentence for homosexuality is so radical and it seems so extreme. 
you've taken on that fight yourself with a lot of bravery and a lot of courage. How do you see this struggle against this these very, very, these horrible, almost barbaric measures of punishment for, for homosexuality? How do you see this fight for yourself? Right. So I, I want to say that the death penalty that was, you know, approved in our parliament this year, it's not the first time it came. It was there in 2009 as a bill. So we had the anti-homosexuality law in 2023. But before that, we had it in 2009 as a bill. It stayed in parliament for five years and was approved in 2014. And then upon petition, it was uh, annulled by the Constitutional Court. I think for me that in spite of growing um, conservative attitudes in Uganda, that it is totally unacceptable, totally unacceptable to punish very severely any human being simply because they are different to the majority. So I think part of the problem in Uganda is that the dominant heterosexual majority have decided to dehumanize and not consider the humanity of minority people who do not love, who do not have sex, who do not express their intimacy the same way as heterosexuals do. And I think for me that the dehumanizing of people who love differently is unacceptable. I take on the fight from the position of knowing that if they go for the homosexual person, the lesbian woman, the gay man, the transgender person, after they're done with them, they're going to come for women. After that, they'll come for my children. After that, God knows who will they, who, who they'll go for next. And I think that to include ourselves in queer rights struggles and to insist that queer rights are human rights is a protection for all Ugandans. Dictators find the weak links in society. They find minority groups they can take advantage of. And if all of us do not stand in solidarity, speak out in solidarity, claiming the humanness of all Ugandans and insisting that Uganda belongs to all of us and insisting that we must challenge such bad laws, dictatorships just expand the horizon of what population groups to taunt and oppress and subjugate and suppress. And I mean, in Uganda, we've seen it growing. The sort of harms and injuries they were putting on just homosexual men are now being put on opposition members. Post-penetrative anal sex used to be a way to taunt gay men upon arrest, to taunt transgender especially trans men, but also trans women. So fought anal penetrative sex by doctors, by police, by prison ward warders, etc. Today they do it to opposition members, politicians in the opposition who are known to be heterosexual as a way of debasing them, dehumanizing them and punishing so that other people will not join the opposition. So they began with gay men and the opposition was quiet. Today, the very same sort of Inhuman, degrading, torturous examinations are being done to both men and women in the opposition, political opposition in Uganda. And so I think if we don't speak out when we still have time, it's coming to our doorsteps. Those of us who question and are critical. And I think for me as a critical free thinker, as a loudmouth, as a person who refuses to be subjugated, they will catch me if I don't speak out for gay people. So, so really, I think for me, 
when people say I'm fighting for others, I'm really fighting for myself too. It's quite selfish as well, you know? And I think that also as a mother, because you mentioned when you were asking about my identity, I have three children. They are Ugandan. Today we live in exile, but I hope that one day they will return home to Uganda. And I want them to return to a Uganda where they can express their sexual identities whichever way, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual, and not be in danger of facing the death penalty. So I think for me that... Um, my work as a queer rights activist is important. It has been debased. We are called agents of foreign imperialism. We are called brainwashed. We are called immoral and decadent. But for me, it's important that we all keep on challenging the dictatorship, particularly because these laws come in one way and they just keep expanding. They'll keep closing all our liberties, our civil freedom, our constitutional rights in the name of the dominant patriarchal misogynistic homophobes who are in power. You mentioned this, that you're called agents of foreign powers. Mm. And there's sometimes the criticism that the, that the queer movement or the queer theories are spread by a, a American and, and British Theories that this is a Western discourse. This is not your position, but that would be a position critical of you saying, well, this is just something that they teach in Western university. This is Western decadent. And how do you challenge this critique that this is kind of moral progressive colonialism that you're bringing? How do you challenge and counter this critique and make alliances with feminists who, who, may, who are feminists, but who may have a more binary conception of, of, of women? So I think for me, the idea that sexuality is specific to particular Western people and not African is the first form of saying, no, we're all human beings and all homos you know, all forms of sexualities, whether homosexual or heterosexual or bisexual or whatever other sexual, if it is human, it's going to be within the African human population because we are human too, you know? And, and to just say there is nothing inhuman or so different about homosexuality, it's a form of human expression through sexuality. And if it can happen with white people, it can happen with green and pink and black people too. The second is through history, very carefully. I belong to the Buganda kingdom, one of the longest historical kingdoms in Africa, in my by African kingdom, we have kings, our royalty, who are recorded by pre-colonial explorers and then the colonizers and then the missionaries for having same-sex liaisons. They mainly focused on males' homosexuality because it was the men who were in the royal courts and the royal palaces and were chiefs and acted as agents of the Kabaka. The Kabaka is the name of the king. As recent as uh, Kabaka Mwanga or King Mwanga, who is uh, known for having murdered martyrs. We celebrate every year. The world celebrates the Ugandan martyrs. A bunch of men who were murdered by King Mwanga because they refused to continue having homosexual encounters with him. This was pre-colonial. It was nothing to do with the West. So as a Muganda woman, I always call back on that history and say, you cannot write out that part of my African history. It is pre-colonial. It's 
for the West. It's before Westernization. And so if anything happens, the white people, the colonizers found us with this in our courts. I think the third thing for me is a matter of language. We don't use words like gay and homosexual and queer in our local language. We have words. Words in my local language, which may be derogatory, but they show an origin in our own ways of making meaning. We had ways of referring to homosexual men, to lesbian women, to women who did not get married, to men but stayed around and were never reproductive biologically, but also to transgender people, people who are either three-spirited and we call them chakulach saja for transgender men and chakulach kazi for transgender women. These are nothing to do with Western English language. And so I know that queer and homosexual and lesbian and gay have particular histories from the West. We too have our own. And we can make sense of these words that come to us before Englishization through Christianization and colonization and civilization came. We had our own ways of referring to this, and maybe other African people don't. But in Buganda, we have a language all our own. And I think I want to say the fourth thing that while things like queer pride, gay pride, and rainbow flags, and all these symbolisms that are universal may be dominated by the West, right? There is no taking away from the fact that they are homosexuals in Africa. Whether we do activism for them or not, these people fuck and love and have intimacy with people of their same identity. And it has nothing to do with activism. In fact, the activists, the, the, the queer right activists may be following a particular Western tradition. There are so many other ways of being gay that mm -hmm. don't begin and end with LGBTIQA plus activism in Uganda. And it is those sorts of sociality, sexuality, humanity, diversity that I often call upon and say, well, we know these old elderly people, they don't walk around with rainbows, they don't identify with any labels, but we know they're same-sex loving and there's nothing Western about them. So I'm saying two things, in other words, that Africa has its own histories and ways of making meaning and cultural frames of reference to show we, we have queer people. We may use the word queer that is Western, but we have our own languages. Having said that, that's a level of Westernization of the LGBTIQA rights movement and how it organizes, particularly because of the language. We need a language that, unif you know, it, it sort of unites us and our struggles. There's nothing wrong with that. The language of human rights is a very colonizing language. The language to claim for LGBTIQA plus rights is a very colonizing language, but it's also universalizing and it makes us members of that universal community fighting for rights. There's nothing wrong or an African about joining a universal language and body of people claiming for rights, right? But we have other ways of claiming for human dignity in Africa. We don't have to use the human rights approach, but human rights are also African rights. Gay pride is also African pride because we are human, I think. Uh, I think that's a very, very good answer, a very inspiring answer as, as well. I want to ask you about shame and shamelessness as well, because right. obviously shame has, in your poetry as well, shame is a very important motif, and, it, and shamelessness is important for all liberating movements. They need to be 
shameless because shame is a way of controlling people, making them feel ashamed for being who they are, making them feel ashamed for claiming their own identity or realizing what they what what they really desire. You've written, I'm totally shameless in my resistance against the enablers of my tormentors. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of shamelessness in your work? I mean, I think for me that in teaching us to be civilized and respectable, you know, a great component of what keeps us in our place is this fear of being ashamed, fear of stepping out of place, fear of offending, fear of being seen to be out of order. And usually if you're out of order, you're either a nuisance, we have laws against public nuisance, or you're disorderly, we have laws against public disorder, or like me, you're blamed with insanity, you're mentally ill, right? So to keep away from all those labels and accusations, people tend to yield to this need to be, you know, I will not be shamed, I will be proper, I will not speak badly, I will sit properly. If you're a woman, you don't open your legs like a man. You know, they take away that power from us. You have to keep them closed like a polite, nice woman, otherwise you'll be shamed. And I think for me that in some ways, studying dissidents, I just discovered there's so much freedom in taking off those layers of, 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 of the shaming and civility and demand to be respectable all the time because they're so limiting, they're so constricting, so freezing. And I keep saying, as long as what I'm doing is not injurious, I will use, I will not be ashamed for speaking out, especially when I'm when they, when the oppressor tries to shame me for speaking out about their own oppression, they put they put their their guns on 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 our hungry bellies on our on our voice boxes. They don't want us to speak, but we're not speaking about bad things. We're only speaking about why are they murdering us? Why are they stealing public funds? Why are young girls dropping out of school because they don't have contraception? Why? Do women dialed birth? And to use language that is rude and impolite to ask these questions for me is important because I think the language of politeness, the language of those who are ashamed of being bold has been domesticated. Power holders no longer listen to polite speech, but when we are shameless and we say, fuck you, president, or, or fuck you, raper of constitution's pussy, for example, then there's a sudden effect of grabbing, grabbing power holders to say she didn't just turn her impoliteness on us. And yes, she did. And why did she do that? Then people begin to have a discussion and a debate. So I think for me that the more we encourage others to be shameless, the louder a voice grows, criticizing those who shame us with their power. For, for the very same things they're doing, I think for me that um, you use the word shameless, I tend to use the word respect and irrespectability or disrespect um, because respect, women who are privileged and have class and have social status, especially women, but also men, have to be respectable, you know? And I think the need to be respectable and respectful and respected takes away from many of us, especially creatives, our work as creatives loses its sharp edge if we want to criticize and critique and not to praise. If people want to praise, they can be 
as shameful and ashamed as they want. If you want to criticize as I do, I think it's more effective, especially in repressive societies such as Uganda, where dictatorships have silenced everyone. It's much more effective to be shameless and rude and brass and brass and say it as it is. It's more effective. It seems to me that as a woman, the, the male authoritarian leader is more afraid of you when you're shameless that there's another weapon in the in the shamelessness as a woman. Of course, I know women are also more exposed, but I was struck by this report that came out by Erica Chenoweth about the successful movements all over the world. She said there was one thing that she could say for sure, that for political movements that had female leaders and female participants, they were more dangerous to the leaders than other movements. And that she said that's why that authoritarian leaders are so scared of them and why we have so much fight against abortion, so much fight against women's liberations, so many, that they, they are the threats to, to, to authoritarian leaders. Do you see that as well, that, that, that there is a strength, there's a position of strength also in, in, in being a woman? I know there's a lot of positions of vulnerability as, as well, but it seems to me that there's a very, very strong critical potential in, in that position. I mean, I see a lot of sense in what you're saying. In fact, it's, 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 it's eye-opening. I can speak mainly about Uganda, which I know well. I know that dictator Yoweri Museveni is very keen on silencing and, and sort of putting down women who are powerful and in the opposition. He wants to have women advance if they're praising him, if they're not critical, if they're grateful, and if they're thankful. And so I think part of what is interesting in Uganda is this, um, the paradox between those of us who are critical women and say Museveni has not done enough, and others who say, but Museveni has advanced women's rights. You have a woman vice president, a woman speaker of parliament, women members of parliament, like there's so many women everywhere, and those women, different to us, are very subservient and thankful and grateful, and they don't think for themselves. They're those women who are who have learned that tradition of women should be pretty flowers to be seen, but never heard. And if you're heard, your, your words should be smelling sweet like a flower, never funny like some of us. And I think that the women, who the, the, the people that the regime has punished the most have been powerful, strong, critical, dissident women. And I think the reason why he does this, I mean, I'm thinking now with your own theory, the reason why he does this is because women at the front line, when they come to the front line open, they have nothing more to lose, or they're doing it for their children. And women have an effect, especially reproductive women have an effect of being responsible for the younger generation. And I think they persist and will be incorruptible. What I have noticed in Uganda is that Museveni will get the first critical women and beat them up so hard. That is why he punished me so hard. And it deters other women, older women, younger women, but also men. I think the other thing around subjugating and punishing strong women is it shames the men around us. How can you let your woman come to the front line and be punished so severely as if there were no men around? There's a way in which it takes away power from the men 
in the immediate environs or close proximity to these women who are strong women. But I totally believe, in fact, I have been thinking a lot about Uganda and the sort of mess in which the liberation struggle is in. All the leaders at the forefront are men, wonderful men, but totally important men to change the status quo. And I was thinking we need to find an, a strong woman or maybe a third gender person or maybe someone different to all of us because the women are very scared right now. He has punished women dissidents very, very severely. Many of us are in exile. But I think that if the struggle for liberation in Uganda is left to the men, they are not very effective. Not very effective, sadly. Yeah, I have just one last question, yes. which is about, and I, I want to return again to, to this very strong confidence you have in the power of writing, because you've been writing all sorts of different texts and beautiful texts about missing your daughter's birthday or an 85-year-old per woman that you met in prison, and you've been writing very angry texts and a lot of different different kinds of, of, of poetry. Really a pleasure to follow you all the way around in your poetry. And there's a quote where you say, we pack missiles in our pens and grenades in our mouths and shoot our truth at the dictatorship. Uh, just here, when you've been up against a lot, you've been taking on very, very big, powerful opponents. How do you keep believing in writing? I think for me, uh, like I said in maybe that poem or maybe another one, they are powerless in the face of writing. You're not going to shoot a sentence with a gun. You can't shoot bullets at a question, you know? I think for me, there's so much power in the written word. Writing brings a particular clarity. Even when I have written what they call mad rants, as I write, I'm editing and thinking and retwisting. What may come out as four very rude sentences are often a lot of hard work and edits and re-edits. And I'm thinking about the bad words that I choose. My bad words don't just end up in those poems or those Facebook posts. They're I, I do diction, long hard work. What will offend the dictator the most, you know? Will it be will it be breast or nipple or you know whatever? And I believe so much in the harmless, harmless but very harmful ways of working with words. A word will slap you so hard, and yet it's just a word. A, a word can 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 tear down and, and and break down very heavily, but it's just a word, a, a mere stringing together of words beautifully strung together to become very vulgar and, and grotesque, but, but beautifully, you know, penmanship is, is amazing. And I think for me that the power of, 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 of words is because they just are. I just, I just said it, I just wrote it, work with it, fight it, criticize it, deny it, but there it is. And I think that some people have said to me, your words are very violent. And I said, but look, my words have never cut up with a knife or a bayonet or a bullet or a bomb. They've never cut up anything. They just give people perspective to think in ways that may be cutting and piercing, but they're just words. And I totally believe that part of the reason why teaching literature and language and the arts 
is really undervalued increasingly in Uganda is because the dictator studied literature and history and political science, and he knows the power of the humanities to effect critical thinking, to, 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 to transport meaning, to change mindsets, to persuade. And I know that people say to me, but you're mad. Your words haven't changed anything. And I say, but look, you're talking about my words. So many people have done so many things, but you've chosen my words. And they <laughs> know me only because of my words. Maybe they know my protests and my political activism, but it's usually my words that they remember. So I totally believe wholeheartedly that maybe my word won't change the crisis today. But it allows people to work with meanings and you think about it later. You may laugh about it. You may curse and swear. But words build slowly and softly. And for me, I believe in their power. Totally believe in their power. Well, thank you so much, Stylian Jans. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your work and for your inspiration. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye. Bye. Det var så min samtale med Stella Nianti. Jeg håber, at I fik lige så meget fornøjelse, inspiration, glæde og respekt for den modstandskamp, hun fører ud af det, som jeg gjorde. Og også fik bevidstheden om, at vi, der har privilegiet til at kunne føre modstandskamp uden at risikere vores liv, til at kunne kæmpe for frihed, uden at der rigtig er noget eksistentielt på spil for os, at vi har en forpligtelse for at stille os til rådighed for dem, der kæmper meget svære kampe. Til gengæld, hvis vi stiller os til rådighed for dem, så kan vi også lære en hel masse af, hvordan man klarer sig, hvilket humør man skal gå ind i det med, og hvilke indsatser, der faktisk virkelig gør en forskel. Den her samtale var redigeret af vores ufatteligt gode ven, evigt gode hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tale med en anden kvinde, som vi her på Dobbelt Information tager meget op til. Det er den franske forfatter Virginie Despont, der efter sin Vernon Subutex-trilogi, som er et europæisk mesterværk, har skrevet en ny bog, der hedder Kære Fuckhoved. På en eller anden måde adresserer hun alt det, som jeg også har talt med Stella Nianci om i den her samtale, men hun gør det på et helt andet måde, og vi kommer et helt andet sted hen. Tak for, at I lyttede med. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.